economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our second episode. I'm producer Jason Dawes, and here with me are our hosts, Dr. Russ McCullough and Dr. Levi Russell, and my colleague, Jacob Michael. Today, we will be discussing the economics of a call to work by continuing on with the book, How Then Should We Work? All right, yeah, so what's this be fruitful and multiply stuff all about that we, that we see in Genesis? So uh, Hugh Welchel, the author, takes us into this, what has been called by himself and other theologians, the cultural mandate. I never really heard it phrased that way or called that way um, before, but uh, the things that they're picking up is in Genesis, we have a call to go to work, be fruitful and multiply. This is before the apple and, and the fall into sin. So uh, it makes you think a bit if we're thinking of heaven uh, or a second coming of a new heaven and a new earth, uh, what does that abundance look like? Is there still economics going on? So economics uh, is the study of human choice in the world we live. And if God made the world in seven days and said, this is good, 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 and ooh, this is very good, uh, do we, we don't have any reason to believe that we wouldn't have something existing in some sort of similarity to what we see today, that it's not going to be dramatically different of us floating on clouds and strumming harps, or maybe that's a part of it at some point, but ultimately, what does it mean to be fruitful and multiply? And I think that's where uh, economic reasoning and kind of living our life and the choices we make to be good stewards of the resources that uh, are put in front of us is an important part of our calling to work. And so, after the fall, as we talked about in episode one, um, we got thorns and thistles and work uh, kind of sucked. And we had to, uh, things weren't in abundance anymore. I kind of picture the, the pre-fall garden as the, the juiciest, best apples. I think C.S. Lewis said this at one point. They're just kind of there for the picking. So the work was to go up to a tree and grab it, pick it down and and start eating, right? So the work was fairly easy. It was stuff that we want to do. Um, and so the, the nature of work would be much different, uh, but the concept of it actually being work and our calling to uh, go out and subdue the earth and be sub-creators of what God has created uh, was part of what God wanted to watch us do from upstairs. I think that was part of the purpose. I didn't mention this last time, but uh, one of the things that kept me going on thinking about these topics is, as an economist is, well, what, what is God's objective function, you know? So we often are so focused on ourselves that we think, oh, I want to do this or I should do this and the decisions we make in terms of thinking about our purpose and, and creation, you know, what, what is God's purpose? Um, he's got everything already. What else could he want? Right? So I think that's where the free will argument, which I think we'll get into more in uh, some future episodes, 
that he turns us loose and uh, we're free to make mistakes and that's part of what keeps it interesting for God. Um, so uh, that said, uh, thoughts on work that we need to do. Any agreement or disagreement with uh, some of the things I said on, you know, is there so much abundance that it's not even fair to really call it work? Uh, if we think about this cultural mandate and then if anybody wants to make comments on the chapter gets into New Testament versus Old Testament. So I mentioned Genesis, but uh, uh, the, the theme he argues carries through the whole, through the whole Bible. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's a certain amount of, um, you know, work is good for you. So even though it, it um, is difficult, there's a sort of, um, you know, the, the mortification itself is good, right? So yeah. like you, um, the dignity, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it may be, it may be painful to do it, but the fact that you're giving something up, you know, and, uh, and giving of yourself, giving of your time, you know, that's, uh, that's a holy thing, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, um, you know, I think it, it goes back to, you know, kind of saying, you know, God turns, you know, a, a negative into a positive. You know, and so yeah, there, there was the fall and, and all of that, and, and work is difficult and not something you necessarily want to do. But if you think about it as something that you know benefits you and benefits others, and um, and just intrinsically itself is something that uh, brings glory to God, then you um, you know if you think about it that way, then it's it's something that ends up being good, not just is just strictly a negative. Yeah. Well, and I think the work that we do where you feel good at work, you know, if you really nailed something and maybe your boss praised you or you just felt like things came together really well today. Uh, when I was looking to start this Courtney Institute, there'd be some days where like, yes, right? Like I just, I got that commitment. I, I got the president to get on board with the Courtney Institute. That feel good feeling, that was work for me, right? And I, I think that's the type of work that we would have uh, continuing forward that we don't have the thorns and thistles work isn't a negative that it's really to the to the positive and uh, yeah I think that has a lot to say maybe um, if anybody else wants to think on the the dignity of work um, in terms of some of our systems of helping people out all right so we're, we're gonna have that poverty ink screening uh, coming up and, and a lot of that has to do with uh, uh, people um, getting to a position where they can help themselves and, and the dignity that that can bring with different types of help. So. Well, yeah, I mean, definitely working gives you some type of dignity. Cause I mean, you know, if you work for the things you own rather than just giving it, you know, you have that sense of pride, like you, you did it rather than just it being handed to you. All right. I think it also is the, the kind of work and the passion you have behind it. Obviously, if you're so involved in the Gorton Institute and trying to make it happen and you do get that across to the president, that's going to feel so rewarding. But if maybe you're not like absolutely in love with your job, the job versus career mm -hmm. idea, then it might not feel the same. Yeah. And I think the chapter talked about that a little bit, I believe, um, about chasing your vocation and how that's different. Um, kind of finding your vocation and what you're meant to do rather than just. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's the connection to being divine. I think uh, something he uh, talks about in this book and others is we don't want Sunday to be church day, God day, and then Monday, oh, I got to punch in and I got to do this and I got to bring the kids to soccer and I got to do that. Right? So it, we don't want to separate those things into their compartments. And I think too often we, it, it's easy to lose sight of the work that you do for a paycheck did that do anything for God? Am I just working for myself and my family? I mean, is that holy in and of itself? And I think what uh, Hugh Welchel would like to say is that you're darn right it is. Um, if it created value for my creation, and what do we mean by creating value? It means whatever you produced, somebody got value from it, otherwise they wouldn't have paid you. So in a voluntary transaction, you've got two parties come to the table neither one is coerced into doing it, which then tells us that whatever price they struck, and if that's a, a wage of $10 an hour, that the business owner got at least $10 of value out of you giving an hour's worth of work. And you didn't have to be at that job. Sometimes we use that language, of course, oh, I gotta go to work, but you also voluntarily supplied an hour's worth of work uh, for that $10. And so you were getting um, uh, the benefit of that if, when we think about the resource market. And so all of these trades that we have in the output market or uh, for final goods and services or in the resource market, as long as they're voluntary, there is value creation. And I think what Hugh's saying is that that's good. If you're creating value, you are subduing the earth and making something better. You're creating win-win situations. The, the market doesn't create a zero-sum game where if I buy something from Walmart, Walmart wins because they profited and I lost. No, I, I purchased a good at uh, $30, and so that signaled that that good must have gave me at least $30 worth of value. How do I know that for sure? Because you wouldn't have bought it otherwise, right? It's the revealed preference framework that we look at in economics that these exchanges that we do at least reveals part of uh, the subjective values that are being used day to day in trade. So how can we do more of that? Does, uh, uh, if we start with Adam, um, Jesus comes along, does he turn over the table with the exchangers and say, I don't, I don't believe in free trade. Get your money out for the table. Uh, I, I, if some of you know what uh, the Bible verse, uh, I'm glad because I, I can't quote it myself, but um, when Jesus does that, he's really disputing what they're doing in a temple. Right? He's angry at what's going on at that time and place. Um, I think it's most theologians would agree from, from what I've read that that's not a situation where Jesus is being anti-market. Like, oh, you shouldn't be trading with each other. Don't you know it's all about giving, give, 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 no exchange. I don't, I don't, think, that's, I don't think that's right. So, and I think there's uh, support in Hugh's book as well as some other places that that wouldn't be the case. So, what does Jesus tell us to do? Um, go and make disciples of all nations. And so Hugh characterizes that along with other theologians, that that's, a re, that's kind of a restatement 
and I think there's a little bit of, you know, nobody's 100% on this, but it's a pretty good restatement of the be fruitful and multiply, is to go out and make a disciples of all nations. Hey, tell people about me. Let's increase the flock. Let's bring in more people, more believers. And one of the ways you can create value as a, as a Christian is just to go to work, do your job. You don't have to evangelize at work to be a good Christian at work. Just do your job. And I, I think that's the message that Hugh tries to put across. That's kind of neat. And it's a little, I think, countercultural for Christians to think that, that, oh, you're not doing Christian work if you're not singing in the choir or uh, I'm a good Christian because I'm teaching Sunday school. What are you doing for the church? You know, to say, well, I went to my job. Oh, really? That's Christian work. The answer is, yeah, I think it, it's arguably Christian work that Martin Luther didn't think that there was uh, some work better than others. Um, he, he tells a story, I think this is in a different book, but uh, they're building a, there's a cathedral under construction, right? And so they go up to a guy who's uh, got some uh, concrete and stuff and, and the person asks them, so what are you doing? Well, I'm framing up this wall to get the concrete to go down. Oh, great. Okay. So they go to the next guy and he's got paint. And so he's clearly getting uh, paint on the walls. He says, well, what are you doing? Well, I've been hired to do the paint. We're starting on the exterior here and then we'll be moving inside. And then they come up to a, a little old lady who's got a broom in her hand and she's sweeping things up. And they say, what are you doing? I'm building a cathedral. <laughs> Right. So we often miss the message of getting so involved with what we're doing of not thinking about the bigger picture that we're all contributing to building the cathedral. And so that's, I thought, kind of a neat story that um, ties in maybe the work we do that we're, we are here doing something better, creating value in a multiple different ways. Yes. Yeah, and, and I think that I think it makes sense, you know, that you would have a narrow reading of that because, you know, OK, so he he flips over the tables in the temple and all that. But there's not um, it. You know, he, the disciples were all, you know, tradesmen. I mean, they, they it's not like they were all mm -hmm. you right. Know, just, uh, you know, whatever we would think of as ostensibly, a you know, a, a good profession. You know, they weren't social workers or whatever. They were, you know, they were fishermen and stuff like that. And so it. Um, you know, and plus at the time, I mean, you know, we didn't really have, I mean, there's kind of the dawn of markets. So, you know, you, you couldn't really say that it was some kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, negative thing to just in general on markets and, and mm -hmm. all that sort of thing. Because right. I mean, heck that, you know, they didn't really exist. Then right. So, right. Yeah. And some of the markets that did exist might've been point blank evil. I mean, we get into slavery and the market yep. for human beings, that's sure. not something that would be biblically supported. So by, by no means, an interesting discussion we got into at this conference was, are markets moral? And I continued to push back, and I think I finally sold some people on this, that markets are amoral, right? They don't have morals. A market system is just a combination of how we can coordinate our efforts you know, perhaps people want to sell some stuff, people want to buy some stuff, a market coordinates that behavior. And so if we have something illegal going on or something unjust, the market is not moral in and of itself. It's the people who are in the market that are operating that are. So the mar we, we use that term loosely that, oh, that 
you know, the market for uh, prostitution or the market for um, child labor or something is immoral. Well, the market really, it's the people who are doing that stuff. Right. Yeah. The immorality of the people is making a perception that, yeah, in that industry, we've got something immoral going on, but the market itself is just a hammer. Yeah, right? It's just a tool. It's yeah. just a tool. Yeah. It's just something that we use and, and we can, there's non-market tools available also um, that first come first serve or if we give, you know, dictator rights for people to choose uh, right. uh, getting in long lines or whatever. If we don't have a market where we have free exchange of voluntary people, um, there's other ways that things are going to get allocated, which in many cases might not be any more fair, but depending on your version of fairness, maybe they would be, right? All the tall people get to go first and the, <laughs> and the short people go last. So I'm getting a signal from our producer that this is about time for our break. So uh, Jason, is that correct? Yes, it is. All right, sounds good. We'll take a break and come back and wrap up some other things with the kingdom of God. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysex.org. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. Faith and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Levi or Russ today. Welcome back from our break. We're continuing on with how then should we work? All right. Well, moving into the next section on chapter two here, we just got out of the, the cultural mandate um, area and thinking about work and what we need to do. Uh, the next section is the kingdom of God. And, and so the author gets into Christ coming and establishing that the kingdom of God is at hand was, I think, I'm looking at the book now. Was that uh, Matthew or something? I should have had that on there, but Corinthians and some other places. So, you know, what do you really mean? Like all of a sudden he's here on earth, the earth that we're living in right now, the sinful earth. And he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Certainly part of that meant that he's here, right? Um, so does that change, is that a game changer um, to have, uh, the kingdom at hand. So if he's here to reign, how are we supposed to work? Does that change who our boss is or how we go about things? And I think I want to share uh, this quote here on um, them comparing this to World War II. Uh, which I thought was, was good on, on page 24. So the idea is Christ comes, 
he dies, he rises again, and we're still stuck here, right? We, why not kind of redeem the whole thing all at one time? Um, so when he establishes the, the kingdom uh, here on earth, Satan is squashed. Um, the grace of God will allow you to have free keys to the kingdom, so to speak, right? Your entrance fee is paid. Um, your sins are uh, forgiven, uh, or can be forgiven, I guess, with the proper following through your belief in Christ. And so um, he's conquered sin with a capital S. It, it doesn't have to be a part of your life anymore. And so that's part of the significance. Um, back in our first episode, the four-chapter gospel, remember, is starting with um, creation. We had the four-chapter gospel of creation, fall, redemption with Christ, and then ultimately restoration is the book of Revelations, bringing us to some new heavens and new earth and uh, the second coming of, of Christ. And so on this page 24, um, he uh, likens this to, um, and he was pulling from a 20... 20th century theologian uh, with uh, World War II and the Allies in Germany. For all intents and purposes, World War II in Europe was over on D-Day when Allied troops established a beachhead in Normandy, France. Everyone, even the Germans, knew that VE Day, uh, the ultimate victory, was inevitable uh, when the war would end with Germany's defeat. All that remained was for the Allies to liberate Europe. Yet between D-Day and VE Day, uh, came the Battle of the Bulge, a desperate counterattack by the German army, fought during one of the worst winters in Europe. Uh, for six weeks, the battle raged back and forth. It was the deadliest battle for American forces during the war. Over 19,000 Americans were killed. So it's like, we know we're safe with the arrival of Christ, but we still got to live our lives and fight the battle. So then he kind of goes on with um, our purpose Go and make disciples of all nations. The kingdom is upon us. It's within your grasp. Forgiveness is there. Um, the good life is there. The freedom that comes with uh, Christ is there all for the taking. And so that, that was the interpretation as I read it on, on the kingdom part. Um, and I never really thought about it that way before. That, but, it, but it's a good thing when we think about economics and the choices that we have to make. If you find Christ or he finds you, uh, we'll talk a little bit more on that theological issue too. Uh, is everything rosy? Is everything perfect? Do we still have to face death? Do we still have pain and suffering? Right? The problem of pain is one of the top leading things, bless you, one of the top leading things that uh, causes people to uh, move away from the church. And so having a deeper understanding that we're still at battle is kind of a neat thing. So that is the kingdom of God. Thoughts on that? Otherwise we'll move into this common grace, but. It's just kind of interesting thinking about, you know, time between like the, the, the battle of the bulge and the, you know, kind of the, just the transitioning period. Just interesting to think of it in that way. Right. Yeah. That he, we knew the war was over. I mean, it was inevitable once we occupied Normandy, but yet there was much more to do before the war was won. 
did he compare that time? Sorry, I can't. Did he compare that time to purgatory at all? Uh, no. So purgatory. Maybe I'll let the Catholic uh, speak up here if he's feeling comfortable with uh, purgatory. But um, so purgatory is more of a Catholic belief. Yeah, I am Catholic. Uh, I know. Okay, yeah. But so he wasn't referring to that here. As well okay, I don't remember if I couldn't remember if he did or not. So yeah, do we, you know, what does our in-between time? So what, what's, what Hugh is looking at, which I think where there's theological debate, is if we die and go to heaven, is that our final resting place? The Bible says no. Second coming of Christ, we are back on the new heavens and earth, and we go about living our, our life. Perfect bodies. Are, yeah, our yeah. perfect bodies and all of that jazz. And so... My little understanding, and you guys jump in if you want, purgatory in the Catholic faith is a, a little in-between place that uh, you die and you're not quite heaven, you're not quite hell, but it isn't good and you want to get your loved ones up mm -hmm. into. And it is one of the things that Luther protested a bit with the, um, can we pay money to help my loved one get out of purgatory? Oh, that's when the church was selling goods. Yeah, they were selling well, indulgences. Indulgences, part yeah. Of it. So indulgences are slightly different, but yeah. That, um, and apparently this, I didn't realize this kind of still goes on in the Catholic uh, faith today, that you can, um, if you have a loved one die, you can kind of pay for a special service or a special mention at a service for your loved one where they will include in the, prayers so that everybody's praying at one time to kind of help yeah, your, so loved, I mean, your loved one get out of, the pur out of purgatory. If I can clarify a little bit. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's not necessarily supposed to be a physical place, right? It's, but it's, um, it's kind of one of these things where, you know, if you do something wrong, if you commit a sin, you know, you can be forgiven for the sin, but then there's still kind of, um, and I, I don't, I don't have the all the wording on this. Obviously, I'm an economist, but it's uh, <laughs> we forgive you. There's, a, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's still part of you that you know is you still are you still committed that sin, right? And so it's still part of your life in the sense that you know it's something that is in your past, right? And so the idea is that if you're going to heaven, then you're forgiven for your sins. But before you can enter the state of grace in heaven you have to get the rest of that off of your soul, right? The, the, the past part has to go away. And so the idea of praying for someone in pure in purgatory is to, in a sense, help take away that past part of them. Hmm. And so that's why I think they get into like, I mean, we say mass for someone who died, right? It's because we're, we're, um, you know, praying that their soul, uh, it becomes cleansed, quickly and and more um you know uh yeah more expediently i guess through that process yeah. Yeah. and and into the state of grace to be in heaven because obviously you know not, nothing can be in heaven that's not perfect right so that's kind of the idea is yeah. that you're you're alive your soul is alive right. so. so that's the catholic interpretation of that lutherans and other protestants don't believe in purgatory in general so that's kind of an archaeology interpretation of, of uh, 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 Luther didn't see that directly enough in the scripture. Um, the Catholic faith have evolved through different leaders of the church with different interpretations. And so that's where it gets us today. So, um, so yeah, that's fun. Okay.
let's talk about common grace. Common grace. So uh, the next section here works in the idea of, uh, I think, justice. So I kind of want to open up this thinking about economic justice. So um, if you do something bad, you have some consequences you have to face, right? And so you kind of got that, that trade-off. Or if you're a, so if you're a bad person, do you always have bad things happening to you? Or do good things happen to bad people? Or do bad things happen to good people? I think we can probably all agree that that is all across the board, right? Mm -hmm. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. Um, and there's, there's some sort of uncertainty and mystic thing that is probably beyond the mysteries that we can pull out of, uh, pull out of the Bible. However, um, God does uh, point to the good things in life coming from God. Like that's still the, the good stuff that's out there is the common grace. So the rain, and I'm butchering a quote, but I think it's more or less the the rain falls on the just and the unjust, right? So God created rain, rain helps us grow things, everybody gets to use the rain, right? And so they, he's calling it common grace here as opposed to saving grace. So saving grace is your eternal life with uh, Christ in heaven, whereas common grace is the fact that we all get to use, whether you're bad or whether you're good, you get to use the sunshine, you get to use the rain. There's some common factors. And, and I would push this from an economic standpoint into the market system. I think the market system is divine. I, I don't, I don't, I know there'd be a lot of people who would maybe push back on that for reasons of, well, what about the market for this bad thing or that bad thing? And again, markets are amoral. If we have moral people using markets, it'll get us the best outcomes. Um, overall, uh, which might be a stretch, and I'm willing to take some heat on that, but that's the, that's uh, my thinking on that. And so the spontaneous order that comes about from the use of markets, I think is part of this common grace. God, that allows good people and bad people to exchange in the markets and both be made better off. To me, that's a common grace element of, um, how we can use markets and uh, we don't have to know people the impersonal nature of markets on um, how we got our steak dinner i don't know the farmer the rancher who who raised that cow and i don't know the butcher who cut it up and i don't know the trucker who drove it to the grocery store and i barely know the guy behind the counter although it might have been my son because he worked at the the uh, local <laughs> grocery store this this time but right we can go through a series of of exchanges where we get a lot of stuff done in, in the world uh, without knowing anybody to it and not needing to know it. So if you, if you think like markets are divine, what would you think about like, like regulations and things? Would that be acting against divinity almost? Ah, that's an interesting one. What do you think on that, Levi? Well, regulation? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think, guess, are you with me on the divine part, or am I pushing that yeah, too far? What do you think? Uh, I think the price mechanism is definitely divine. That makes sense. You know? <laughs> well, I think, I think on the, the regulation bit, um, you know, so, I mean, regulation in general, uh, I mean, you can have multiple sources of regulation, right? You can have government regulation, which is probably what you're talking right, about. Right, yeah. But the market also has its own discipline. And so, 
you know, I think when we talk about intervention uh, by the government and how it can, you know, I, I mean, I, it, the basic problem is that, you know, the, the central planners have a, an information problem, mm-hmm. you know, and, the, and that's the beauty of markets is there's all this information from all these individuals that have a ton of information about one specific thing. And, and so when you try to force something into that process, you either get more regulation that, that inhibits opportunities, right, for growth, or you get, um, you get less regulation. Like, I mean, you could argue that, like, for instance, the bailouts, the financial bailouts in 2008, that, that was a, a limiting factor on the market's ability to regulate firm behavior. Mm-hmm. Right? Because if you just know you're not going to, uh, your company's not going to go under, well, right. you'll just act with impunity, right? And so I think it's more of an information, I think government, the government interference thing is more of, does it improve information, like secure property rights, or does it inhibit information transfer mm. in a market? And then really the regulation bit itself, you know, can very easily be done by the market itself if it has the proper information. Do we need government regulation if there was no sin? Yeah, so it's like the if men were angels kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. Right? You would love your neighbor, right? Yeah. You wouldn't need it. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, and, and would we have sure. enough information, even if we were all moral, right? There was no sin. I'm kind of thinking pre-fall or second coming heaven type of thing, and we're all on earth. Would there be enough information? There's nothing in the Bible that says we're going to, like, know what my neighbor's thinking ever, right? So... The, the, there's there's no evident biblical evidence that says we're going to live in a place where we're all mind readers. So if that's the case, there, there would need to be some sort of coordination going on that might have to be done through a government, which would more or less be a voluntary government. And we've, we've now, from a public choice perspective, know that the, the person who's helping to administer that. So, yeah, I don't know. Open the floor here. I was also thinking uh, along those lines that people often do regulation, laws, whatever, and it's with good intentions, but don't always have the best outcomes. So the same could be true, a world without sin. These people have all these great ideas, but that doesn't mean, even if it's coming from a moral standpoint, that it's going to have good outcomes. Mm, Yeah, good point. Good point that it... um, could lead some things there's always trade-offs right so they might lead to good things like two good things but one thing's better than the other right and so if, if we want to maximize and be good stewards of of the resources yeah it's a good point jason so. i i think the thing is if so i've been reading uh, edward phaser's recent book on uh, the five proofs for god's existence and and edward edward phaser is a is a catholic um uh philosopher uh, and uh, professor. Okay. And so, um, you know, I think you're talking about pre-fall without sin. I just think, I mean, everything would just be in super abundance. And so mm-hmm. we wouldn't even, we wouldn't even have markets, right? Because, ah. because like if every, there would be no such thing, <laughs> there would be no privation, right? I mean, privation would be, you know, the imperfection of something, right? And so, I mean, if, if there's no sin, then there's no imperfection. And if there's no imperfection, then then there's no un, unactualized potential. You know? See, I, I don't think of markets doing the correction, but they're a tool to coordinate behavior. 
right? Sending signals and information through, and again, if we're not all mind readers and we, and God hasn't provided us, which we don't know, by the way, but assuming we have some sort of, uh, from what we know pre-fall and what we've seen otherwise, if we're not mind readers, then I'm still not going to know what the person over in India is doing right now and how to coordinate that behavior. So I think markets are a tool in a positive sense, like a hammer to help complete a task or to help creation continue to create value. I guess what I'm saying is if everything is super abundant then you don't need markets because I don't need to know what someone mm-hmm. down the street is doing because I have everything I need. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I just, I have everything of everything, right? And that's I, all I'm saying. I don't think we'll have everything of everything. I think if we're left with natural resources, if we go back to the beginning, we're in the garden, there's naturally growing things, but there was no iPhones. So if I have an idea to make an iPhone, and that's probably a stretch to go from the garden to iPhone, so I apologize. But the point is, if, if we are created in the image of God and we can create things on our own, we're going to want to share that with our neighbors to make their life better. There's yeah. nothing that says that won't go on. And to coordinate that type of behavior, markets, I think, help us. Well, I just wonder what pro- private property rights would look at like, too, because I mean, if you know, we love our neighbor. Why we would probably want to share everything. You know, would anything really be mine? And I mean, Levi said it. It was kind of interesting. You know, uh, the privacy kind of comes because of the imperfections. And I mean, like you know, Jesus came or uh, God came to the garden and saw that they had clothes on. You know, uh, so I was just kind of wondering. You know, what do you think private property rights would look like? Yeah, I think that's fun to think about too. We are getting into some good stuff here. Um, I think of that as being like two rich guys, right? Both of them are totally filthy loaded, but they still might be able to come to agreements with each other to make their stakeholders even better, right? There's still Mm -hmm. value to be created. So even if we're living in abundance, there's still value creation to go. Be fruitful and multiply is what God commanded pre-fall there's still things to do to make things even better than abundance. So I, to me, the thought of sitting back and I have everything, as you were saying, right? I don't think you have everything. I think there's more to get. And it's not in a materialistic way, but in a way that glorifies God and, and makes does something for your neighbor. Like I kind of want to figure out a new invention so that I can make your life better off because I'm really here to serve you. One of Luther's famous quotes is, God doesn't need your work, but your neighbor does. And I don't think that would necessarily be different otherwise, right? God doesn't need your work. You don't have to work for God. He's got everything already, but your neighbor needs your work. Hmm. All right, that looks like kind of a good spot to cut, although we were getting really good, so that might lead us into the next episode here. So um, if you like the type of things we're talking about, uh, we are the Gortney Institute, and um, you can go to our uh, website, and there's a little donor button, and there's an opportunity there if you wanted to give $10 a month or do something different, uh, or if you just want to listen and pass the word along to other people, uh, we're here to kind of help spread the word of faith and economics. Thanks for listening.